Lord, a highway for our God's gospel to come through. You do a good job. But the reason to get back to the talk, because what I need to do is extend my time. You know that. I'm always short. But so here's the deal. So I have been gone for a while, and unfortunately, I probably won't be back much. I'll be back in two weeks because I get to teach again. Hopefully, I'm back in two weeks, Lord willing. But uh, my brother was given the news that he um, is at the last stages of his brain tumor. So every week is a gift. Every week we don't know if he'll be there. So I've been spending all my time with him and with my mom and his family um, on the weekends as much as possible um, to give them a break, to just be a support and a help to them to do what I can do. But also we've been really busy lately because of this. So probably the title slide is probably the first one, but look. Do you see her? If you don't know, we've been trying to adopt a little girl from Ukraine for five years. If you're a senior, you were in junior high when that happened. You were nine if you were a freshman when we started doing this, if you can imagine that. But this picture, with her name up on top in that age of 12, is from the adoptable orphans list from Ukraine, which means she's finally able to be adopted. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) Finally. So mid-January. So we're starting again. Fourth time's the charm, right? Fourth time. We're starting all that paperwork again right now so that we can file on her January 15th. Hopefully have her home before impact camp so that you can all see her there. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to bring her home. So, yeah, whether it's from the lowest lows or the highest highs, I'm really weepy this morning. And almost any other time you see me, I know. But this one's sort of especially weepy. Um, I don't know what I would have done, though, without y'all. I don't know what I would have done without the body of Christ. When Dave gave me this week this topic, I had no idea how much I would need the truths in this, in this t- week. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles open, please open your Bibles to that. You know it will be on the screen, but you know I love to see pages flipping too. See it in your own Bible. Mark it up in your own text so that you can remember it when you read it again. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, just four short verses. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God at the day, on, on the day of visitation. It's always important when you're reading a chapter or a section, especially when you get to four small verses in a text, that you keep in mind who's writing it and who he's writing to. And it's Peter, duh, it's actually in the you know, title of it, right? So we get that. But he's writing to a people who are living just like we are in really hard times. And I have you noticed this life is hard? It doesn't take long. You kind of go through this kind of la-la fairy tale phase of when you were little kids, and we all kind of wish we could get back there when you didn't realize things like abortion and racism and hatred and divorce were a thing. 
per- Peter's people are not any different than us. In, in 1 Peter 1, he calls them various trials. In chapter 2, we find out that some of the time, they're being beaten for doing good. Literally, it says, when you do good and are beaten for it. So they're trying to do the right thing, and they're still getting people coming at them. He calls these trials fiery. They're the blazing hot portions of your life that you cannot turn away from. And he says at the end of this book, he wants them to know that the same kind of things are happening to your brothers and sisters throughout the world. So what does people, Peter think that we need in order to be able to live this life in God, especially when things are hard? Well, first of all, Peter tells us, and there's three points with some subpoints because you know how I am. Um, we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. He knows that most of us are not raised up understanding the, New Te- the Old Testament. Most of us are not Jews who became Christians. And so he knows that we are, have a problem, that we're missing sort of the point of what has happened to us. This is what God has been doing for thousands of years. And if we don't understand it, we'll miss what happened and we'll miss kind of what it means for us today. Peter has come to understand that we are in the middle of a a long-told story, a grand story on a huge scale. And if you don't understand the place in that story, you won't know how to play your part. Peter connects you to four very old identities that are brand new to you now if you're a follower of Christ. He says, verse 9, flip the slide for me. You are a chosen race. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a people for his own possession. Those are old words that Peter is talking. He's quoting words from thousands of years before. He has taken your mind back to the time of Moses and when they just left Egypt. He's taking you back to the time of Isaiah and the kings of Israel. Peter is reminding you of this. Your new life in Christ Who you are as a Christian is not a separate person. It's not centered on you and on what happens to you. All you have of Christ, you have because you're joined to Christ and to the rest of his people. God is not taking a really yucky Kim and turning into a much better Kim. He is taking all of us, each one of us, you and me, as dead branches And he is grafting us into the true and living vine of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ and being in him that makes us alive together with Christ. All of us are not being made into better versions of us. We are all, each and every one of us, being turned into the image of his son. It's his life that flows through us now. God has always been drawing out of people from around the world, throughout the miles and throughout time, thousands and thousands of years apart, to get us to understand that we are one thing, part of one grand thing. Here are the four ways to wrap your mind around this. He says you are a chosen, selected out of a group to be what? A new race. Your earthly race is yours because of who your parents are and who their parents are. If you could take a DNA test, they could track you back to where your origins were of the peoples of this earth. And here Peter comes along to say, no, I've already taken the test. I've already found the answer. The origins of each one of us now are of the race of Jesus Christ. You have the DNA of Christ 
You have been made into a new creation. And that new creation from the very innermost part of your being bears the heritage, the gene code of Jesus Christ. You are a new race. If they could test you, they would find out that you have the very same race as Jesus Christ. And God chose you for this. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't because he, he finally saw that like later on in the future, you'd be worth it. You'd finally get it right. He chose you not from anything to do with you. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. It is God out of his own great love for, uh, for us, for himself, for his son, that made us alive together with his son. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's, not a, it's a gift of God, not of works. No one's going to boast about how great they are and why God would choose them. You are created in Christ to bear the family resemblance. That's your whole duty. That's your whole job. It's why you were given Christ's DNA is to bear the family resemblance of God. He has not just possessed you. He calls you a, a people for his own possession. It's not possessing you like you own that shirt. You possess that shirt. Not like that. He possesses you like you possess your heart, like you possess your eyes, like you possess your spine. He has taken you from outside and brought you in, not just into the kingdom, not just into the throne room, but he has taken you into himself in Christ Jesus. You have the very love with which he loved the Father. You have been drawn into himself. Colossians 3 says to set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. Why? Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. With Christ in God. You cannot get closer to the heart of God than you are already. He loves you. Your identity, your substance is of the same substance as Jesus Christ. You are a holy nation. You are set apart. Set apart from this world. Set apart from all you used to be. Set apart from all you used to do. And made for the service of God. You are a people who live out before the rest of the watching world what it means to be taken into the heart of God, who sit even now with Christ, united with him in a death like his, united in a resurrection just like his. And Peter tells us that you are a royal priesthood. Dave talked last week about this word priesthood. He did such an excellent job. I love the way he talked about how we're the people who serve God, but we're also the people who stand between God and the rest of this world. And he said that you're perfectly positioned. God has given you the circumstances, the time, the place, the location, the friends, perfectly placed to minister what no one else probably can minister. If your family has gone through a divorce, then you are perfectly positioned to be next to those whose family are walking through a divorce, to give them the help and counsel and wisdom and comfort and hope they need to be able to get through it. Peter brings up this same word today, but it's not like he forgot he said it. This time he's focusing more on the first part of it than the second. You are a royal priesthood. Royal. We get that. We get priest and we get royalty, kings and queens. We know that, right? But never before Christ have these things been joined together. A king who rules and a, a person who ministers God's grace. Now, it's one thing. Way back in the time of Adam, before the fall ever happened, Adam was given commands by God. 
Before he told, was told not to eat of that tree, he was told to rule this earth, to reign over it. But that rule and that reign was not meant to be for himself. It was meant to be as an imitation of God. He was supposed to do what God would do, say what God would say, feel what God would feel, take care of this earth as God would take care of it so that the reflection of God, the image of God, the glory of God would be manifest in the people of earth just like the heavens declare the glory of God. That was your job. That was his job back then, and that's what he's recreating his people to do in us. But that way of living is not natural to us. Let me give you just a quick, quick little test, and you'll understand it. I want you to imagine you hit 18, you buy a lottery ticket. It's $300 million that you just won. $300 million. I want you to think in your head, what's the first five things you're going to do with that money? Just be honest. The first five things you're going to do with that money. Now, you ready? Do any of them focus on anybody else but you and yours? Even if we say we're going to give, we usually give it to those we know and love, right? That is not the work of God. That is not his image in us. God does not come and take care of just himself, just his, just those who's close to him. For God so loved the world that he gave the highest treasure of heaven. Our image bearer, is to help those who are the neediest, the weakest. Even if you come here and you are one of the needy, even if you don't have daily food, place to lay your, your head, even if you don't dwell in peace and safety, you are surrounded by 150 people who can get you some help. But did you know that in our town, in our state, in our country, and especially across the world, there are people who can't even get to help but we're going to focus our resources on me and mine and gain and ease and comfort and security and entertainment for me and mine. When Christ came, did he gain for himself? Well, sure, we say, of course he did, right? I mean, he got the name that's above every name. Guess what, people? He had that before he came. God didn't give Jesus something that he had never had before. Jesus had always borne the name of Jesus Christ, name above all names. He's always had all the glory, all the power, all the riches. He came to gain all of that for us too. And then he sends us out and says, go gain for the kingdom. Go gain so that others live. So we're supposed to become those kind of people. Jesus said in Acts chapter 20, Paul says that Jesus told him it is better to give than to receive. That's the image of your Savior. This is the kingly rule of a priest. No rule for power, not rule for your own gain, but to reign and rule and minister in such a way that those who are weakest are the ones who are most helped. This is your identity. This is your new race. This is your Christ. He has given you life when you only earned death. He gave you his own family, even though you began as an orphan. He gave you the riches of the kingdom. And he said, Luke 12, 
Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he says, go and be like that. To live this way, to be royal priests, you have to know that you are loved with the very love that that God has for his only son. You have to know that your life is now his. You have to know you'll be provided for, you'll be protected by the Father so that you can play out the same story that Jesus played out for us. Your life, Peter told us in 1 Peter 1, is to be lived in such a way that those who do not see God can know that God both exists and is glorious when they see your life. Think of it like this. Picture that you're sitting across like at lunchtime. You're sitting across from somebody, directly across, and you're in the middle of a conversation about Friday night's game. Right, and you're kind of going on and on about it. And all of a sudden, you see your friend's eyes dart up and over your shoulder, and they start smiling, and they start to get up. And before you turn around, you know two things have happened. You know that there is somebody behind you, and you know that whoever that is, he is a welcome, joy-filled sight to your friend. God says that's how it's supposed to work in your life. They're supposed to see you live your life in such a way that they know they can't see him, but you somehow do. And that you not only see him, but that he is a joy-filled, wondrous sight that would cause you to stand up and move. That life is what you're supposed to be known by. They will know who you are. They will know your new race, overcoming your old race. No longer ruling and reigning for your own gain, but to bring others along with you, to help those who are the neediest. You minister God for them, the provision of God for them, the protection of God for them, the inheritance of God for them. You declare the praises of God for them. And how do we do that kind of life? Peter turns our gaze to the second part, which is who you were. To be able to do this, we need to remember who we were. He notes, points out this in this next verse. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were alone. Your people were not a people. They were nothing. They were powerless. We think our country is so fantastic. And hear me, in so many ways it is. But the Romans thought their country was also so fantastic. And the Babylonians thought they were the best and the most powerful. And the Assyrians and the Mesopotamians and the great British Empire that even we could beat. Right? You know that we're next, right? Nations rise and fall and rise and fall. In Isaiah 40, it says that we're like dust in a scale. Those are the nations. We're nothing. We have to own this word. Do you see what it says about you? Own this. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You have to own this truth because with that truth comes a humility. comes a gratefulness, a gratitude at the base of it. Imagine we have been trying to get Lyra now for five years. Picture that at the end of that time, I just lose sight of all that. I just kind of forget. I say to her one day, why are you being such a spoiled brat? It's not like you lived in an orphanage for 12 years. That would be heinous to forget where she has come from. To forget the humility and gratitude that we should have that she belongs to us and we belong to her. My life should be marked towards her by her past, by where she came from, by the riches of what she now has in us. 
Gratitude and humility should mark all of us, should remind us being a people of his own possession is a miracle of grace, a gift that brought us the rest of the gifts we have in Jesus Christ. Once none of us have received mercy, and now we have, we have received mercy. Mark your life with that, because if you get that, the next part that he tells you how to live will be made much easier. It will smooth in the desert a highway for your life to be in conformity to that. Look at the next set of verses, starting verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God at the day of his visitation. Two things under this. It should be at the, on the fight against yourself and walk honorably before the world. Fight against yourself and walk honorably before the world. You are at war. Satan, this world, your flesh, would all love to turn your gaze away from who you are so that you can get out of this world whatever you can. So you can worry about whether or not this world is working for you. So you can position yourself for power and wealth and success. It, it will take you your eyes away from all you have in Jesus Christ, all you've been promised and all the promises of God, all you've been joined into, all that Christ is for you. You are not your own. That's like the fine print of salvation that somebody forgot to tell me whenever I became a follower of Christ. I didn't know it for years, which is why I started changing the impact gospel presentation so that we would include like a life of obedience after him, because I didn't want everybody else to find out about it later. I thought truly that coming to Christ was to get me out of hell, help me maybe to stop cussing and not screw up my kids so badly. That's literally all I thought it was for. No lie. I came to faith blindly, by faith. I hadn't read all the scriptures and understand what God was going to do for me in Christ Jesus. Like almost all of us, I come to this and then find out what happened later. And part of what I found out was, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. There is work now for you to do. If God is your God, then you are his possession. If you can sing, he's a good, good father. If you were an orphan, but now you have God as a father, then you are his race. God's person. And you must bear that family resemblance. You must look like your brother. You must do the work of your father. You must reign and rule to show this world the truth. You don't have a choice because you're not your own. Your whole reality, your whole job, what should be your prevailing passion and your deepest joy is the display of God on this earth is to glorify God in your body, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, and all your attitudes behind all of it should be, can I glorify the Father more and more? But to do that, you need to know it's going to mean war. This is not something that you can just relax into. To free yourself from this world's way of thinking, to escape trying to get more and more for yourself, it means you first have to own what Peter called you, which is sojourners and exiles. 
You are a sojourner. It literally just means temporarily passing by, temporarily staying somewhere. But exile means someone who is barred from their home country. Peter is not only giving you like this, like this little vision for what you are, he's reminding you, you are barred from your home country. And your home country was this world. You are barred from making a home here again. You are in exile, kicked out. You cannot go home again because Christ is your new home. You have to fight every single day to remember these two things are true of you, that this is your new identity. I am a sojourner. I am an exile. I am barred from becoming a person who is at home in this world. This takes a fight. You have to leave this place better than you found it, but you have to leave this place. If you heard Gary's message today, You have to know you're not at home here. You have to be willing to leave this place, to leave where you are today, to leave this state, this country, but to leave this world behind until the new world is fashioned from the old. It means you have to care about the people and care for the spaces around you. You don't get to treat it like trash, but you cannot also treat it like this is home base for you. Your hope is not in these people. It's not in this power. It is not in this wealth. It's not in this country. It's not in your own family's race. Your hope is in Jesus Christ alone. And as an exile, you're barred from doing anything else. It's far easier to wake up every day and be so consumed by the details of today that you forget your journeying through. It is far easier just to be busy about all of these things that are in front of you and to forget who you actually are. If the way to get this right, Peter says, is to wage war against the passions of your flesh. Don't give them any room to grow. Find out what activities, what thoughts, what entertainments, what work, what relationships... What do you do all day long that actually fuels your identity in Jesus Christ? What are the things that you do that you grow more passionate about him because of them? What are the the activities and the entertainments that you do that cause you to leave there looking more like Jesus Christ than when you began? What are the tools God has given you all in your life that may fuel you for the service of looking like God? And then start to notice which ones do exactly the opposite. What activities and entertainments and thoughts and relationships are you involved in that when, when somebody interrupts you in the middle of it, cause you to shrink away, hide, turn off the phone, cower, click it off, yell at them? What are you involved in? I don't care if it's a term paper, Netflix, or porn. All three of those can serve this world, your flesh, and turning you back into the image of Satan. Nudity and sex are not wrong. Porn is wrong because it uses nudity and sex the way God did not intend it to be used. It uses it to serve yourself instead of serving others. You have to abstain from those things. Keep away from those things that are not serving the identity of Christ in you. I've told many of you before, I don't drink alcohol and there's nothing wrong with alcohol. It's that when I get around alcohol, I want to use it outside of the intention God gave it to us for. 
Nothing wrong with alcohol. It is my flesh that I'm at war with. I may not drink it until I see Jesus Christ again. But you know what? That's okay because Jesus said he's not drinking that cup until he sees me again. If he can quit, I can quit. But the whole goal is not to stay away from alcohol. It's to so crucify my flesh so that I could use alcohol rightly. The whole point of staying away from porn, staying away from premarital sex, staying away from indulging in the passions of your flesh is not to never have sex, never to see a nude figure in front of you. It is to get yourself under control so that you can have that activity be used to the glory of God. Have that sight be one that is honorable to the Lord. This is not to keep away from the world. You have to stay close enough to the world that the, this says that they could see your good works and honor your Father. Your, your world is supposed to be so marked by God that even unbelievers have to give credit to God for it. To do that is not to stay away from everything in this world. It's to fight yourself so that you can be in the world rightly. To do that, we do it by this. Wage war against your flesh by fighting for faith in Christ and turn away from what is tempting you to sin. Fight for faith in Jesus Christ. Fight to believe all that Peter just told you you are in Christ and fight to abstain from the flesh. Peter is trying to help you guys right in the middle of a life that is hard. He hasn't forgotten my struggles when he tells me this. Whether it's a personal struggle that you have, whether it's the national struggles that are making you crazy, whether it's in your family, know that Peter is doing us a favor here. But know this, it is a strange way to think. When things go wrong, we want answers. We want help. We want hope right here and right now. We want to know the way to go. We pray for wisdom, for discernment, for comfort. And Peter's like, I, I don't mind all that, but I have a way you should be thinking right now. And says, God wrote it down for us and put it in his Bible. We're supposed to think this way too. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you were. And you need to know how to walk that way out through waging war against your flesh and through walking honorably in front of others. What happens when we do this? Well, you will do the thing I kind of passed over was found back in verse 9. If you do this, if you live this life this way, you will proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You will live close enough to them so that you can rule and reign and minister to them in a way that causes not only you to proclaim the excellencies, but other people, even unbelievers, will see your life and they will proclaim the excellencies of a God who did this to you. Literally, whether your daughter is 6,217 miles away or if your brother is on hospice and could get the text any time that he is dying now, this is the truth of what I have to know to get me through the day. I have to know who I am in Christ and how to wage war against my own flesh so that as I walk, I can do so honorably proclaiming him, showing them who he is and what it's like, especially when it's hard. 
that there is a God who exists and that he is a joy-filled, wondrous, strengthening, encouraging, comforting sight to me so that even they could proclaim the excellencies of God. If you're sitting there knowing you don't have this kind of hope, I want you to know it may, not, it may just simply be truly like it was for me. You didn't know that this was what you were called to do. And that's okay. It's a great day to just come awake to what you're here for. But you may also be thinking about it because you know you've never had this kind of hope. You've never thought of life in Christ like this. You actually are starting to realize you've never had it. That's a good day. It's a good day for that too. You have leaders all around you to give you that kind of hope for yourself. But you also may know it. You may know it and simply not care about it. Because you're so hardened, so hurt, so beaten back by what this world is doing you, what you know God is letting happen to you, ordaining for you, that it is hardening you inside against him. I want you to know it's okay to be there. If you've read my story about even just Lyra's story, you've known I've gotten there before. Know that it is okay to be there. It's just not okay to stay there. Be in his word. Learn of the comfort of God in Jesus Christ. Be around his people. Let them encourage you with who he is and how he rules and reigns for your benefit. He will see you through this fire. You will not be burned. When you pass through the waters, they will not overwhelm you. But that doesn't mean we like fire and flood. That's okay. It's worth it. He's worth it. You have to know that at the core of your being, he is worth this. And you will rejoice that he chose your life to magnify himself, to declare his praise, and that's what it's all about. What Peter was referring to back in those words he called us, one of them was from Isaiah 53, a people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. That's what we're here for. That's what you're here for. Let's be people who know it, who know how to fight for it, and who walk it out in front of this world to the praise and glory of God. Let me pray. Father, we're asking that you would do this, that you would make us a people who know who we are, who know who we were, and know how to walk this out, how to fight for this life to be true. I pray that you'll make us into a people whose only desire is to reflect you upon this earth, to do like the heavens do, declare the glory of God to do like the skies do, to proclaim the works of your hands. So that even unbelievers, even though they think we're evil, they call us evildoers, even though they think we're evil, even they would, have, we, they would see a life that only God could get credit for. Make us into that people that your name, Jesus Christ, might be known with honor and praise and glory and strength and majesty and riches from now and eternity, we pray. Amen.